I was actually wanting to be an actor and I hated waiting tables and I had to figure out something else to do. And way back then it was, uh, there was uh, almost uh, like personal training almost didn't exist. There were places like the New York Health and Racquet Club, uh, Equinox didn't exist back then. And um, Nautilus had uh, at that time in the, in the mid seventies had begun, uh, you know, Arthur Jones, Ellington Darden had begun creating these machines and creating centers, Nautilus training centers. And uh, in high school and around 1977 or so, 78, I participated in, uh, I went to one of these gyms and it was the, the single most difficult thing I had ever done in my life. In fact, it was so difficult, like I, I like went four times and I never went back. That's right. Um, the, um, what's important for people to understand about that, cause I know like, uh, um, the bodybuilders like, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger and a lot of these other guys popularized like pumping iron and all that. They popularized this system and, um, made it look as if because they were taking anabolic steroids and things like that. They made it look as if weightlifting just gave you big, bulky, tight muscles. And that's unfor it's, un it's sort of like the way, it's unfortunate that people think uh, artery-clogging saturated fat is actually something that's real, right? Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of things, but one of them in particular is that weightlifting is going to give you big, bulky muscles when that's just simply not true. Most of the men and women you see who look like that are genetically gifted, just like Paul Newman's blue eyes, uh, or men who are our age who have full heads of hair. It's genetic, right? Don't you wish, Pete? You're right. After I read Protein Power, Protein Power Life Plan, and spoke with Dr. Eads, and we collaborated, uh, Dr. Richard Feynman was also... Uh, a mentor of mine, it strongly influ influenced my thinking about uh, uh, and helped me very much in understanding, because I, I am not a nutritional expert. I'm not. Um, but I, I, I like to think that I, that I read a lot and know a lot about it, and people like Dr. Eads and Dr. Feynman have helped me to understand this. But one of the things that I recently started to do, this is in 2000 and... Um, 18, I guess, I was reading Dr. Fung, Dr. Jason Fung's work, and a few other um, experts on fasting and the therapeutic effects of fasting, specifically how it affects autophagy, which is basically, basically your body cleaning up its junk proteins and seeking out sugars within the fat cells and basically just cleaning itself up as well as in causing improvements in hormonal tone, specifically increasing growth hormone um, to a degree. So I thought to myself, as an aging man, I thought to myself, this would be really interesting to, to see if it worked for me. I was lucky in that I had purchased uh, for each studio a device called an in-body um, body composition machine. They're sort of research grade. They're not like $200 ones you get at Sharper Image. They're each about 10 grand each and they're, they're research grade. And I thought, hmm, let me see. I'm going to embark upon prolonged intermittent fasting and then basically eating just animal matter you know, a salad here or there, but basically just animal matter as my main source of fuel and uh, see what happens. So long story short. And then, so what I also did was I went to a medical uh, facility where I got a DEXA uh, uh, scan of my body composition just to check it against the in-body machine to, because the, the DEXA is sort of the gold, pretty much the gold standard when it comes to a singular device. And over the course of three months, 
I lost 10 uh, 14 pounds of fat, gained seven pounds of lean mass, including bone mass at 57 years of age. That, and I had been doing low carb, weightlifting. Uh, I just hadn't incorporated any fasting. So what I was doing was fasting minimally 16, more like 18 hours every single day. And then in my feeding window, so to speak, between four and eight, I ate meat. You know, lamb, pork, steak, fish. You know, if it walked, crawled, flew, swam, or slithered, I ate it. And uh, I had uh, every single um, health marker got better. My A1C got better. My glucose got better. And I was already healthy. But everything just got a little bit better. And I had managed to increase my lean tissue. And I didn't change the way I exercised. I just kept doing the slow burn training twice a week. I had, according to a DEXA scan, and, and at the end of the, the scan, you sit with a physician who is an expert at the scan who sits with you and says, okay, this is, this is what you did. And I have the report, like, right there. It was so impressive. The doctor said to me, he, he reads it you know, bef before and after, and he's, like, looking at it going, he's like, and he looks at me and he goes, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. And I told him, and he was like, really? And I said, yeah, really. And he said, you have the second best DEXA reading I have ever seen on a man. And the first one was a 25-year-old triathlete, and he wasn't much better than you. Welcome to the herd, and thanks for listening. We're happy to help you have informed conversations with your healthcare providers. But please do not treat anything we say in this or any of our episodes as medical advice. Even when the guests are physicians, they're not your physician. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating, and follow, and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. Um, Don Pedro, the Sodfather, is so pleased to be joined today um, by another man that I consider a friend, um, Fred Hahn. Welcome, Fred. Hey, Peter. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it very much. I'm so glad to have the opportunity. Glad you survived the blizzard of 2020. Um, that was something. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so for those who don't know who Fred Hahn is, um, you've been involved in exercise. Oh, I don't know. I have something here that says you started when you were 10 years old. So that's what, 20, 30 years now, something? <laughs> You're too kind. <laughs> um yeah i've always but, been interested uh, i bought that charles atlas remember those charles atlas uh uh documents that uh, so i'd been interested in in uh in physical fitness and strength training for as long as i can remember and and so again starting in the 80s you were starting as a personal trainer yeah at that time i had um I was actually wanting to be an actor and I hated waiting tables and I had to figure out something else to do. And way back then it was, uh, there was um, almost uh, like personal training almost didn't exist. There were places like the New York health and racket club uh, Equinox didn't exist back then. And um, Nautilus had uh, at that time in the, in the mid seventies had begun uh, you know, Arthur Jones, Ellington Darden had begun creating these machines and creating centers, Nautilus training centers. And uh, in high school and around 1977 or so, 78, I participated in, uh, I went to one of these gyms and it was the, the single most difficult thing I had ever done in my life. In fact, it was so difficult, like I, went, I like went four times and I never went back. 
And, and that was like the birth of high intensity training. Um, but I had always been interested in it. And um, so when the 80s came around, um, personal training had just begun. And so I got hired as a, a kind of a personal trainer for the New York, New York Health and Racquet Club. And to me, that was much more enjoyable than waiting tables. So I got involved in that and uh, eventually um, uh, started working as a personal trainer for the Hospital for Joint Disease and Sports Medicine Center. They had a brand new orthopedic center. Um, and sports medicine started becoming popular because the 10 or 15 years of the aerobics craze caused lots of back pain and knee pain and hip pain. So uh, sports medicine was born. And I got hired by the Hospital for Joint Diseases Sports Medicine Center as a, um, a strength trainer. Like a, and uh, so, you know, you'd go skiing, you'd break your knee, the doctor would fix your knee, you'd go to physical therapy, physical therapist would do the physical therapy things, and then you'd be sent to me, and I would strengthen your legs or do whatever the physical therapist uh, told me to do. And that led to me opening my own physical therapy clinic with a orthopedic surgeon, which then led eventually to me opening up uh, slow burn personal training in 1998. Mm. There's a lot in between. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Kind of, uh, yeah. So. Excellent. So how did you come to collaborate with Michael Eads? And did that include Mary Dan as well on, on yeah, it was Mike and Mary Dan? Yeah. Well, yeah. I had, um, so long story short, I had opened up this gym and I had been reading about, um, low carbohydrate dieting. I just got very interested in it and I read protein power and protein power life plan. And at some point in 2001, the end of 2000, I got a new client and her, this woman came into the gym and she had heard about the strength training and she was interested in becoming stronger. Uh, her name was uh, Hannah Taub and she sat down, we were doing an initial, you know, breaking the ice, doing the initial consultation. So what do you do for a living now? And she goes, oh, well, I'm a, I'm an, I'm an, a, a literary agent. I said, oh, that's great. Uh, any, any books I've uh, ever, you know, because I, I read a lot. And she goes, well, have you ever read a book called Protein Power or Protein Power Life Plan? And I said, I just finished reading those. She goes, oh, um, Mike and Mayor Denny's on their agent. And I said, oh, wow, that's, that's fascinating. And then she said that uh, there's somebody writing a book now about this system. And it was a guy that I had taught about this system. And I, of course, started to get a little jealous. And um, I said to Hannah, hey, you know, I can, I can write. Maybe, uh, you know, I could, I could write a book uh, on this. And she goes, uh, can you write? And I said, I think so. So I sent her some stuff. And she said to me a couple of days later, you're a very good amateur. <laughs> and I said, okay. But I think what you have to say is very interesting. Let me share it with Mike and Mary Dan and see if they're interested in collaborating. I was like, you talking to me? <laughs> so I said, okay. <laughs> and I didn't hear anything for like a couple of months, actually. And then I got a, and actually I had started an email correspondence with Mike Eads. I was just telling him that his book was fantastic and that he was the only doctor that I had ever read who said aerobic exercise is good, but it doesn't give you the added benefit of strength training. So he was the only doctor that I had ever read who understood that strength training gave you both aerobic benefits and strength benefits. So he understood that. And Mike, being as brilliant as he is, and Mary Dan, um, you would expect that he would, that he would. So in any event, a couple of months later, Mike calls me and says, hi, uh, Fred, this is Mike Eads. Uh, I just want to let you know that I really enjoyed reading what you 
what you sent to Hana. And I just want to let you know then that you're more right than you realize. And we'd be interested in collaborating on writing a book. So, <laughs> so lucky Fred. Um, and so we did and uh, published it in, uh, I guess it was December of 2002. And recently, well, certainly since then, you've published another book. This time you're... You apparently have progressed as an author now that uh, you're no longer an amateur, right? So you, you've strong kid, healthy kid. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's a book uh, uh, that I wrote because I felt I had two daughters at the time, and I felt very strongly about you know. So that was in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, and so between two thousand and two and two thousand and eight. I was learning more and more about low carbohydrate eating and realizing that although like, for example, Michelle Obama, her heart was in the right place. And she said uh, she had started a program called, I think it was get moving or move more. And I was realizing that movement or lack of movement really has nothing to do with obesity. You don't become obese because you're not moving as much as that guy, right? There are lots of people who are very active and very obese. And there are lots of people who are very inactive who are not obese. So activity doesn't have anything to do with it. So I started to read a lot about it. And then I figured I really wanted to write this book because I wanted parents and caregivers and to, to understand that as this adolescent obesity um, epidemic was was occurring that though yes it's it should kids move of course should kids play of course but to focus on that as the cause of adolescent obesity is like lo looking for your keys where the light's better not where you actually lost them mm -hmm. so i felt it important to write uh that um that how you eat, diet, nutrition, that's far more, that is, you know, the reason why your child has become obese, because of the food that you're feeding your child, although it's like innocent ignorance, you don't know, you're being taught that breakfast cereal is good for your kid, you're being taught that skim milk is better than whole milk, you're being taught that milk is healthy, or healthful, and so what I tried to do was, create a very short to the point book to help even kids who are, you know, 10, 12 years old, they could read it and understand, you know, what, what this is all about. Um, I, the, the episode hasn't released at the time of that we're speaking, but it, it will shortly. I spoke with a professor from North Dakota state university and uh, he's a meat scientist and um, they did a feeding study using swine as a model for human beings, which is an accepted model. And they formulated a diet to mimic the median U.S. diet per NHANES data. And uh, the attending veterinarians stopped the feeding study early because what was happening to the study animals was inhumane. <laughs> that these animals were not thriving, they were not developing, um, they were showing all the symptoms of metabolic um, uh, ill health, insulin resistance, um, laying down intermuscular fat, um, not building muscle, um, including skin conditions. And, and these were, you know, 60 day old pigs during their growing, you know, big growth, uh, period and, and the vet stopped it. And I couldn't help but think if only there were an attending vet overseeing dietary advice, then maybe we'd have a chance. Um, That's, that doesn't surprise me, but that is interesting. Um, yeah. the, the difference between animal nutrition and human nutrition. Um, 
So you're you're in the I mean you're you're a fitness person your whole life. You're training people. Can you tell me what you think fitness means to you? And should mean to others. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I would say, you know, uh, that, that's a good one. Uh, fitness really is um, about positive tissue adaptation, meaning it's like, why exercise in the first place? Why? Why do we eat? We eat to obtain certain micro and macronutrients to obtain fats, proteins, uh, vitamins, and minerals. This is why we eat. If we don't eat, we don't get what we need to live. So why why exercise? Why? What good is it? Um, So the way in my book I wrote, and I didn't invent this concept really. It's a concept that's been around for a long time. All I did was help, help popularize it, which is the difference between what I call positive tissue adaptive exercise and recreational pastime activity. So recreational pastime activities may or may not bestow upon a person a positive tissue adaptation, like riding your bike around the park or taking a stroll in the forest or swimming in the ocean. The point of it is not to improve yourself physically. If, if you get some physical improvement from that, great. But the main reason for, um, for it is you do it because you enjoy it. It makes you feel good. It de-stresses you. Um, it's pleasurable. Fitness really is about, when we say fit, like I often say fit for what? If you're fit for... Uh, Biking, that doesn't mean you're fit for running, which doesn't mean you're fit for swimming. That's why triathletes have to practice all three of their um, skills, because you can't just swim and be good at biking and, you know, and running. You have to practice all three. So fitness is a specific, is a specific thing where exercise is more of a general thing so that if you're not, so for example, if you're not actively making yourself stronger, you are actively becoming weaker. There's no such thing in life as stasis. Hmm. So Hmm. the question then becomes, since that's inarguable, um, in other words, no one's immortal, um, what then would be the safest most time-efficient and effective way to halt and reverse that process. And there's uh, numerous research on resistance training, strength training, weightlifting, whatever you want to call it, um, to indicate that that is the single most effective form of positive tissue adaptive exercise that you can So, for example, if if you had a pair of identical twins and one person, one of them did a uh, safe, progressive resistance training workout and another one did yoga, at the end of a decade, the person doing yoga will have continued to have lost muscle and lost bone, whereas the twin that did progressive resistance training would not have. And that's not saying there's anything wrong with yoga. Yoga's great. And strength training will make your yoga even better. It's just they're two completely different animals. Mm-hmm. And, and so what we, there's a lot of people would understand why losing bone as we age is a bad thing. Um, maybe we should talk a little bit about why it's also uh, a bad idea for us to lose or allow for lean muscle mass reduction as we age. Yeah. Well, the, you know, like bone, like uh, bone tissue, muscle tissue, muscles, think of it this way. A muscle is a force producing engine. That's all it is. It's a little force producing engine. 
And if we decrease the strength of those motors, then our ability to do things decreases. Our ability to walk up a flight of stairs, our ability to get up out of a chair, our ability to get in and out of a taxi cab or a car, and ability to lift our grandchildren. I'm, I can go on and on with the examples. So if you allow yourself, like if I took a magic wand of strength and tapped every single American on the shoulder, and they all had the strength of Superman, well, we wouldn't think of, think of how healthy they would be. Think of, like, especially in, in um, nursing homes, how frail so many of these seniors are. If they had my strength, they'd be walking around by themselves. And I'm 59 years old. They could travel on their own. Think of how they would no longer be a burden on their children because they could get along by themselves. Of course, there's going to be exceptions. This is, you know, God forbid, diseases aside. Um, mm -hmm. Even the strongest person in the world can get a disease. But um, it's really about functionality. And, 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 I'm, and actually, there is some work that's been done by Dr. Um, I'm going to forget her last name now. I can, I can, um, Alexandra S-A, you know, it's, it's uh, Sanger, S-A-E-N-G-E-R, Dr. Alexandra Sanger, and her colleagues showed that strength training actually de-ages you at the genetic level. So it's not just, you know, bigger biceps. Mm. It, it, it also uh, reverses certain properties, genetic markers of aging um, mm. as well. So, okay, weightlifting, weight training has come up a couple times or, or words yeah. that at least uh, trigger that thought in my mind, but we're not necessarily talking about free weights. We're not necessarily talking about going to some facility to lift weights. We could be doing with our body weight and accomplish this wherever we are is that uh, and and then of course we could make some things in our environment that would involve lifting or uh, carrying or things as well right yes you, you're you are i mean i i, I wrote a book uh, the slow burn fitness revolution with doctors mike and mary dan eads and in it i discuss a home workout program that you can use your own body weight for many exercises um or very simple tools that almost anyone can find anywhere. Like uh, you can fill water jugs. You can fill a gallon water jug and mark one pound, two pound, three pounds. Uh, I mentioned this in my book, how you could do that. There are some limitations. Uh, it's very difficult, if not impossible, unless you have the right machinery to strengthen the lumbar extensor muscles or the cervical flexor and extensor muscles. Hmm. So um, just I kind of tell people sometimes you can't build a skyscraper with a hammer and nails. No, you can't. You can build a log cabin. There's things you can do with home tools, but there are some things that you just cannot do. But you can put together a very good um, you know, bodybuilding, body strengthening program in the, um, in the, uh, in your own home. Certainly. And, and it, as you've mentioned, there are real benefits. We're not talking about building muscles to stand on stage and show off. We're talking about lean body mass, maintenance, maybe even improvement so that quality of life is improved. Um, yeah. Uh, and but that's as, the most important. And maybe even metabolic health as well because m more m muscle tissue has advantages metabolically over m not having as much. That's right. Um, the, um, what's important for people to understand about that, because I know like uh, 
Um, the bodybuilders like um, Arnold Schwarzenegger and a lot of these other guys popularized like pumping iron and all that. They popularized this system and um, made it look as if because they were taking anabolic steroids and things like that, they made it look as if weightlifting just gave you big, bulky, tight muscles. And that's unfor it's un it's sort of like the way it's unfortunate that people think uh, artery clogging saturated fat is actually something that's real. Right. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of things, but one of them in particular is that weightlifting is going to give you big, bulky muscles when that's just simply not true. Most of the men and women you see who look like that are genetically gifted, just like Paul Newman's blue eyes. Uh, or men who are our age who have full heads of hair. It's genetic. Right? Don't sure. you wish, Pete? And, biology um, ain't fair. Biology ain't fair, right? Um, but the typical person like you and me, um, metabolically speaking, muscle is uh, very metabolic. And the more muscle you have, uh, the more, is this the right way to say it? I should say, the better your metabolism. Uh, it's not going to allow you to eat five pizza pies and drink beer all day. Um, but the more muscle you have, not only are you more functional, but you're more metabolically active, more metabolically alive. So yeah. that, that question of diet comes in because now you would have been um, certainly clued in and following, uh, I'm trying to train myself. It's a therapeutic carbohydrate reduction approach, um, to, to sort of get it on some more neutral terms, um, yeah. low carb, keto, call it whatever. Okay. Yeah. Um, but you've been following that since at least the nineties. Yes. I mean, in one way or another, and, and, Obviously, you're someone who um, practices what you preach to other people in terms of the resistance training. And then something happened relatively recently, within the last couple of years for you, and you saw a dramatic change. And so could you just talk about that a little bit or a lot? Yeah, sure. Uh, so you're right. After I read Protein Power, Protein Power Life Plan, and spoke with Dr. Eads, and we collaborated, uh, Dr. Richard Feynman was also uh, a mentor of mine. It strongly influ influenced my thinking about uh, uh, and helped me very much in understanding, because I, I am not a nutritional expert. I'm not. Um, but I, I, I like to think that I that I read a lot and know a lot about it. And people like Dr. Eads and Dr. Feynman have helped me to understand this. But one of the things that I recently started to do, this is in 2018, I guess, I was reading Dr. Fung, Dr. Jason Fung's work and a few other um, experts on fasting and the therapeutic effects of fasting specifically how it affects autophagy, which is basically basically your body cleaning up its junk proteins and seeking out sugars within the fat cells and basically just cleaning itself up, as well as in causing improvements in hormonal tone, specifically increasing growth hormone um, to a degree. So... I thought to myself, as an aging man, I thought to myself, this would be really interesting to, to see if it worked for me. I was lucky in that I had purchased uh, for each studio a device called an in-body um, body composition machine. They're sort of research grade. They're not like $200 ones you get at Sharper Image. They're each about 10 grand each, and they're, they're research grade. And I thought, hmm, let me see. I'm going to embark upon prolonged intermittent fasting and then basically eating just 
animal matter, you know, a salad here or there, but basically just animal matter is my main source of fuel and uh, see what happens. So long story short. And then, so what I also did was I went to a medical uh, facility where I got a DEXA uh, uh, scan of my body composition just to check it against the in-body machine to, because the, the DEXA is sort of the gold, pretty much the gold standard when it comes to a singular device. And over the course of three months, I lost 10 pa uh, 14 pounds of fat, gained seven pounds of lean mass, including bone mass at 57 years of age. That, and I had been doing low carb, weightlifting. Uh, I just hadn't incorporated any fasting. So what I was doing was fasting minimally 16, more like 18 hours every single day. And then in my feeding window, so to speak, between four and eight, I ate meat. You know, lamb, pork, steak, fish. You know, if it walked, crawled, flew, swam, or slithered, I ate it. Okay. Eggs are on and, your... Uh, yeah. And uh, I had uh, every single um, health marker got better. My A1C got better. My glucose got better. And I was already healthy. But everything just got a little bit better. And I had managed to increase my lean tissue... And I didn't change the way I exercised. I just kept doing the slow burn training twice a week. I had, according to a DEXA scan, and, and at the end of the, the scan, you sit with a physician who is an expert at the scan who sits with you and says, okay, this is, this is what you did. And I have the report, like, right there. <laughs> and so I am... Um, what was their fact, response? It was so impressive. Yeah. It was so impressive. The doctor said to me, he, he reads it, you know, bef before and after, and he's like looking at it going, he's like, and he looks at me and he goes, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. And I told him, and he was like, really? And I said, yeah, really? And he said, you have the second best DEXA reading I have ever seen on a man. And the first one was a 25-year-old triathlete, and he wasn't much better than you. So this was, uh, um, and so ever since then, I just kept doing it and um, have been, and actually managed to increase my lean tissue another four or five pounds since then. And I have main, basically maintained that with a, with a basically a visceral fat score, a non-existent almost, you need some visceral fat, but an almost non-existent amount of visceral fat. And I had a slightly fatty liver. The doctor previously, my, there's some um, liver cancer in my family. My father died of it, my grandmother. So I'm, almost, I'm always very careful to have the enzymes measured. And um, last I had it measured, it was a sonogram the uh, the doctor, the physician said, "Yeah, you you it's slightly fatty. It, you're okay, but it's like a little bit. No no big deal." And um, since then, my visceral fat has almost been non-existent as well. So uh, I truly believe that um, the combination of intermittent fasting, as well as sticking to a you know a ketogenic all mostly meat animal matter diet has allowed me to be in better health now than I was three years ago. And three years ago, I was in really good health. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, you, you mentioned the, the twice a week is what you do. Um, but yeah. I think it's worth people understanding one, it's not going to the gym every day. It's not the you need to exercise an hour a day, which you hear some version of that in the public. Describe briefly what that looks like for people who are thinking, yeah, sounds good, but you know, I've got so many things I can't be doing already, and you're going to add one more to it. 
Yeah. Well, that, that's a good question. I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, the most important thing, uh, if I if I could just like grab people, every single American by the lapels, and say and have them hear this, it would be the benefits of exercise are obtained when you are resting from exercise. You do not obtain, just like you, you eat a steak, you chew it, you swallow it, it's in your stomach. You haven't gotten any benefit from the steak yet. Other it's than just enjoyment. Other yeah. than the enjoyment. But physiologically speaking, your body has to digest it, turn it into a liquid, send it into your intestines, pick it apart, and send the constituent properties wherever they're going to go to help pay, repair and build you. But at the moment it's in your stomach, it's, it's not doing you any good. So it's the same with exercise. When you go into the gym and you do something that is physiologically beneficial, whatever that might be, um, you do not get the benefit of that exercise till later. People think, unfortunately, because the fitness industry has taught them this, that you get the benefits of exercise when you exercise. So the more exercise you do, the better. And that's un it's an unfortunate um, zeitgeist, you know, that it's just more is better. The more exercise, the better. The, like, uh, you know, artery-clogging, saturated fat. You know, it's, it's just not true. It's, and the analogy I'll, offer, I'll, I'll often give is like a suntan. If, you're, if you want to get a suntan, you go out in the sun, in the summer sun, let's say in, in the Caribbean, and you stay out in the sun for an hour or so before you get burned. You walk into, back into your hotel room. You're not tan. You're red. <laughs> if you stay out in the sun too long, you get sun poisoning, not a deep, dark tan. Your body produces the tan later. Too much sun, no tan, sunburn. You got to start all over again. Uh, too little sun, or if the sun is not intense enough, like a winter sun in Maine, you can stay outside all day. Nothing's going to happen. You're not going to get a tan. So it's the same with exercise. That's why I tell people that walking for exercise, walking for positive tissue adaptation exercise is like drinking water for nutrients. It's a, you're not going to get any. Hardly any at all. So the exercise has to be intense, brief, and infrequent so that you stimulate a positive tissue adaptation and then you let that adaptation actually occur. So the research on strength training shows that twice weekly strength training seems to benefit just about everybody, like a Monday and a Thursday. Uh, body, now, a lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of bodybuilders say, oh, well, Fred, what are you talking about? Look, all the bodybuilders are in the gym five days a week and look at them and they look great. Yeah, because they have created a system, a very effective, time, inefficient system of building their bodies. Because for many bodybuilders, that the gym is their bar. They want to be there. And they want to be there for two or three hours a day because that's where they hobnob. That's where they live. That's where they enjoy the whole, the smell, the people, the friends. So if you're going to live in the gym two to three hours a day, five, six days a week, you have to develop a system of exercise that allows you to get benefits. So you won't work in a high intensity fashion. You'll split your body. You'll do back and biceps on Monday your legs on Tuesday, your chest and triceps on Wednesday, so that you're splitting the routine. So you're letting certain parts get recuperated. But that's a very time inefficient way of doing it. The way uh, I teach it and many other people like myself teach it is train your whole body on Monday, rest Tuesday, rest Wednesday, maybe even rest Thursday, exercise again Thursday or Friday, rest and then in between, just be recreationally active if, if you want to, or play the violin if you want to, or read a book if you want to. But the benefits of exercise come when you rest and recover. Mm -hmm.
And when we combine that with something we might call an appropriate diet, then we see these, as you've found in your own experience, this significant improvement. Um, and it's, it's not as if you were starting from a low level, that you are already at uh, a, a desirable level and, and took it up. So, um, right. so you've mentioned um, the, the slow burn fitness and serious strength. Where can people find you on the web? Uh, what would they look for? Uh, well, on the web, uh, the, well, my website is slowburnpersonaltraining.com. Um, on Instagram, it's uh, uh, slowburnfitness. It's funny, now that I'm thinking about it, is it slowburnfitness on Instagram? <laughs> I think it is, slowburnfitness. Um, I do have a YouTube channel. Uh, if you go to YouTube and you just type in slow burn exercise or slow burn fitness, you'll, you'll find... Uh, a bunch of videos, uh, some uh, demonstration videos on how I, you know, how how they, how the system works, um, and then my two books, you know. But on the web, that's the very best way to to seek me out. Perfect. Um, so we. Oh, and I did want to say, I did want to say one thing about the nutrients. I, I like also for people to understand that fats and proteins are like. If, let's say you're going to build a house and you want to build the house beautifully and you want to build it strong. You're going to hire the very best plumbers and electricians and workmen to come build your house for you. Um, fats and proteins are like the skilled workmen coming to your house. Carbohydrates are like the lazy teenager lying on your couch watching TV. Like totally unnecessary get the heck out of here and go do something productive. So um, it is untrue that carbohydrates are the preferred source of fuel for the human body. That is not true. It never was true. Um, I try to get my clients to understand that fats, especially proteins, are like the guys with the toolboxes. They're going into your body and they're repairing and fixing and building. And, and I might suggest that animal source protein is the highly skilled journeyman yes. um, construction. The others are the just, you know, which end of the hammer do I hold? Um, which end of the nail do I try to drive? That, um, in, it, unfortunately, we've spoken about them as if they're interchangeable and equivalent, and, and it's just far from being true. It's one of many myths. That's a good point. Uh, um, as well as the other nutrients that we get along when we, cause nobody just eats protein. Um, we, we consume food, um, hopefully with people that we enjoy consuming food with. And, um, so there's that social interaction as well, but the, there's so much more. And unfortunately for other people that I'll be speaking with, how can we broaden and stop just talking about protein and and talk more about the essential nutrition that we get when we eat animal source foods as a package um but as i say that's for another day uh and other people although i'm happy to talk about it here um we met i think the first time i met you was like 2012 on uh, one of the low-carb cruises. Um, yes, we, we, yes, yeah. that's right. I forget which one it was, but I think it was uh, maybe the first one I was on, or mm. can't remember exactly. But yeah, so that that goes back a little ways, and um, I had because I'd been reading Mike Ead's Protein Power blog um, that had introduced me to you, but then to meet you in public and then we've had a chance to meet uh on a couple of occasions since then i even made a trip to to uh one of your studios unfortunately you weren't there when i showed up but the staff is good yeah um 
And I understand that there's significant challenges these days with regulations and operating, and um, hopefully that will all be past us soon. Um, can't believe how long this year has lasted. Um, so I've asked you a bunch of questions. Um, it's fair to ask me some, and you know we correspond off and on. Um, trying to get some information. So, but but for the sodcast, if if there's anything specific that you'd like to ask me, that's fair at this point. Well, you know the the thing for the hardest, I would say the hardest uh, challenge for me, like you know, you you come into my gym, I work you out, it's safe, it's effective. You walk out and you're like, wow, this feels great. I don't feel like I was beat up. It's not very difficult to sell people on what I do once I do it with them. The hard part is getting them to understand how to feed themselves and what is really most helpful for them as a human being. Um, so, and I've listened to many lectures of yours and you're, you know, I, w I wish like every time I wish you could just sort of uh, pop up like Yoda when it comes time to talk about the nutrition and just say, Dr. Ballastep, <laughs> please step on in. Because it's very hard. If I tell somebody, eat meat, they look at me like I have five heads. Because they, they, they even to this day, I think, well, where did I read it the other day? Uh, clients sent me and said, well, I don't know, Fred, see, uh, meat causes cancer. There's something, something came out. I don't know what came out recently, but um, so the question is, how, are we making for you, the question is, are we making any, is there any real progress in like uh, in the government, in the industry? Because uh, I used to always think, God, if you could just get the meat industry to realize that they're actually selling the most healthful food there is instead of them like shying away if they could so is there any positive movement in that area i like to think that there is of course there's a mountain to be shifted here and there's a lot of people frankly that um they're opposed to the production and consumption of animal source foods period full stop and unfortunately, they're well-funded, and they know how to use the publicity, um, and so they do. So that's still there. I think a growing number of people are becoming aware that these things that we've been told aren't true. And once you begin to see that, and maybe even once you've begun to have your own personal experience, then everything else becomes subject for re-examination, right? You've, yeah. you've, you've been told that if you eat less, exercise more, you'll lose weight, you'll be healthier, and you, know, you get to be in your 50s, and why do I have insulin resistance, and why them, you know, and then you start to look. So I, I see all those as pieces, but we've got to connect the dots. We've got to get people interconnected across disciplines we i talk about having all these silos of information you know somebody in fitness somebody in in you know animal science somebody in meat science somebody in veterinary medicine someone in human medicine as they get further and further trained that silo becomes narrower and narrower their depth their depth of knowledge is great but their breadth of knowledge becomes less at least they operate as if it's true you know they stay in their lane and we've got to yeah. find ways to build bridges between those so that more and more people can speak across the from production through consumption human flourishing and health space um and and part of the message that i try to give people is look when you improve your health which you can be doing with your clients and are doing, you are improving the world. 
and and these arguments yeah. that come against dietary choices based on somebody's thought that if you eat more of this, you're going to have that kind of an impact. There's no more data there than there was that said, if you don't eat fat, you can't get fat. Or if you eat saturated fat, you're going to clog your arteries or, or, or. It's, it's all part of a very similar process that brings that kind of information to the public. I think the advent of social media, what we're doing here and what will happen to this after it's you know distributed, the ability to listen to all the presentations that you and I can call up to listen to Mike Eads give presentations, um, is, is getting past the gatekeepers that I, I seem to remember you used to publish in a newsletter or a publication that suddenly these people weren't willing to hear what you were saying anymore, right? So, oh, so yeah, Huffington Post. Yes. Yeah. So that those gatekeepers now, we may be seeing a little of that with, you know, like the, the, the big tech, Facebook or whatever, but you can still have a blog, you can still have information on the web, not controlled by. And talking to Belinda Fetke recently, and she said it's the Streisand effect, right? Um, that, that idea that she tried to have, the, I guess the story is they were having a story on coastal erosion in California, they used a picture of her estate. She didn't like it. She tried to get it pulled or suppressed or whatever. And of course, the fact that she tried just blew it up even further. And so now we live in a world where there is technology that could let people get access to information and then learn that there are people who are trying to stop them from having access to that information. And, and that just blows it up even further. The other point to answer is there's a lot of people who are doing work on how do we get more efficient, more productive animal agriculture in the low and middle income countries. There's a lot of people who are showing and documenting the absolute ob objective harm that comes to human beings when they don't get enough animal source food in their diet. Yeah. And part of what we've got to get them to understand is there really is no such thing as too much from a human health and nutrition perspective. There are, other, there are other arguments that we could look at, but I think that at the end of the day, we'll find a, a much better sort of um, understanding. And if we understand that quarter of children, I keep using this one, but it's true. A quarter of children under five years old globally are stunted. It's not just stature, it's cognitive development. The brain doesn't yeah. develop properly when they don't get enough animal source food in their diet. A third yeah. of women of childbearing age are anemic. It may well be that a lot of what we're seeing, even in high-income countries, the ingestive behavior is in part the body trying to get the nutrition it needs, but it's not being supplied in the diet it's being provided, which is the, you know. So if people ate more animal source food in their diet, in those diets, maybe they'd eat less of these other things, you know, what maybe, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just speculating wildly here. <laughs> Um, you know, what if, uh, what if, and then you could talk about, as I have, what if you could um, help type 2 diabetics get off their medication? Because the pharmaceutical industry has an environmental footprint. And it turns out to be fairly significant. And, and the, the one that I got recently was if the average diabetic in the United States could get off their medication they would reduce their carbon footprint 29% more than if they shifted from a high meat to a vegan diet. And we know you can stay on a, you can sustain a high meat diet 
we know very few people can sustain uh, a vegan diet. Right, and I don't even know if the carbon, is that even true, really, that the carbon footprint of meat eating is worse than vegetable eating? Well, yeah, that, that, well, it depends on it depends on how you construct the models, but clearly, again, the best evidence is all of agriculture in the United States is responsible for nine percent of the greenhouse gas emissions. We, yeah, we, we all. so all of it, yeah. and and livestock agriculture is four percent of total. So less yeah. than half of agriculture's comes from animal agriculture yeah and so if you're going to increase people if you want people to eat more animal plant source food that portion is going to go up uh right because you have to eat more to make up for what you're not eating um and then there's lots of problems that come along there's been models where they've tried to look at what would happen if we took it all, you know, if we eliminated animal agriculture and the animals from U.S.? And, you know, the, it, 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 it's not an, it, it's not nothing, but it's so low and it comes at the cost of, and I think it's less than 3%, somewhere in that range. Um, I don't think that they're adequately looking at all the follow-on costs, but that was their projection. And they also said it would come at the expense of creating essential nutrient imbalances and then throwing our food system out of being sustainable uh, in, because you, you have animal agriculture and plant agriculture integrated. Even in the you know, even in high income countries, let alone when we go overseas, you know where sixty percent of the world's fertilizer comes from animals. So if you get rid of them, where's the fertilizer going to come from to grow the crops? You know, most of the farmers in the world are still depending on draft animals, right? Most of those are cows or cattle or oxen. So what are you going to do when you get rid of them? buy them more tractors well the fuel for them represents an enrichment of co2 into the atmosphere because you're burning fossil fuel uh very few people think that deeply about this they just like sound bites and understood and and part of the challenge for myself and those within the ruminati is to figure out how to make this information available and accessible to people in ways that is effective and uh, always interested in in suggestions and uh, collaborating with people to see if we can't do that. Yeah. Yeah, I've had many clients uh, recently, especially, who have one client today, actually. She, uh, I'm trying to get her to increase her protein intake. And uh, when they do, they... You, I can measure how much better in strength they're getting, how much lean mass they're gaining. And they also say to me, Fred, I'm not hungry. Where normally when they would eat their pasta primavera, they're still hungry. And I think you mentioned earlier, it's because they're not taking in the new, the body's saying, feed me. You haven't fed me yet. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, and, you know, and, made me think about uh, even in hospitals. My brother is in the hospital right now. And when he was being fed, I looked at the box of food they were feeding him. And it was like an insure type food. And then I went into the, into the um, Dwayne Reed pharmacy to look at what the ingredients were on the, on insure. And it's literally the first, the first ingredient is corn syrup. And then cornstarch. Mm-hmm. This is what they're feeding sick people. I mean, don't you feed that to people to make them sick? Mm-hmm. Like, let's say you wanted to make somebody sick. You'd feed them that. Well, <laughs> it's based, on, based on swine models, we, we could say, yes, that, that, that's what would happen. Um, 
So, our, yeah, there's there's just so much to do, but I think it also begins with the individuals. I, I think that getting people the information they need so that they can be as healthy as they're capable of being for as long as their circumstances allow them, allows them to improve their lifespan uh, and health span, I'm sorry, improve their health span, not just the number of years, but the quality of those years. Um, and and so I think at this point, I'm just going to say it's so good to talk with you. I, I, oh, I'm, remi- I'm reminded of how much I miss running into people at these events that I used to go to all the time. And, um, yeah. you know, I'm rethinking, rethinking whether that's even the best use. I, I talked to one gentleman who told me, you know, if you want to lower your carbon footprint, don't fly anywhere. It's like, oh, okay. Argue with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. So that one hurt a little bit. Um, <laughs> um, but I but, want to. Yeah, want to yeah. exactly. So, but we have this technology and we can always reach out and just touch base. And so thank you yeah. for taking the time. Um, sure. Anything closing before we wrap this one up? Um, only that um, how how important it is to um, to educate yourself, um, like whoever's listening to this who heard what we were saying and is like, I don't know, meat, I thought it wasn't good, to, to, to educate yourself and not just take what they hear uh, at face value, even what we say. It should be thoroughly investigated by the individual so that they can make their own choice through. Um, and I think that if that homework is done, uh, then you it comes out favorably on the side of animal matter as your main source of fuel and weightlifting, strength training as your main source of exercise. So, like I think you mentioned, that the combination of those two things is like a match made in heaven Perfect. from a health perspective. Perfect. And on that... Yeah, um, thank you, Peter. You, uh, uh, my pleasure. Thank you, Fred.